Okay, good evening, good evening. Welcome. Welcome to New Life Church to Colorado in late September. Come on. Yeah, I'm telling you, man. I was born in Louisiana, spent some time in Texas, but I got here as soon as I could. It's a good place to be, you know? So welcome. We're so glad to open up our doors, our church, our family to you. We're, we've been, and, uh, let me just say this to you. There, uh, not every Sunday, but most Sundays, when I, I sit right there. That's where I sit during worship and during the service. And almost every Sunday, not every Sunday, in that little short walk from there to here, the Lord whispers something to me. He whispered it to me tonight. As I'm walking up, here's what the Lord says. You can't imagine how much I love these people. You can't imagine how much I love these people. And see, what it does something in my heart when I stand before my congregation, my people, because he just reminded me, Brady, you can't imagine how much I love those people. So I just want to say to you tonight, this is what the Lord said walking up. You can't imagine how much I love these people. I want you to know that tonight. Sometimes as pastors, we tell people all the time that God loves them. We need to receive that tonight. God loves us. He's, he is infatuated with who we are in our mind, our heart. He loves you. That's good news. I just thought of this, you know, um, I, I'm loved too well to fail. I really am. I said, I'm going to write a book about that one time, you know. I, I just got that a minute ago. Brady, you're, you're loved way too well to fail. You are too. You're loved way too well to fail. You're going to make it. And I think Pastor Brad's word for some of you, is right on. I think this next three days, the Lord's going to put some wind in your cells. He's going to put some fuel in your tank. God's going to uh, in, saturate you with his presence. All right? You believe that? I turn, turn some house I can't even see past the third, third row. Can we turn some house lights up? It's like, uh, where is everybody? I think there's, all right, thank you. All right, so let's open our Bibles tonight to uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. And while you're turning there, uh, I want to I tell you, our, our sponsor, the, 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 uh, there is a ministry that came alongside us this year and really made it possible for us to even have a pastor's conference. Mission of Mercy is, is, a, is a tremendous ministry based right here in Colorado Springs. Mission, I've met these men. I know the leaders of Mission of Mercy. And I'm not giving you a, a pitch tonight. I'm not giving you some kind of canned pitch. I, I like these guys. I trust these guys. I trust this ministry. And here's what I love about them. I think, I think it's come a time in our local churches where we stop scattering uh, our money all over the world, hoping for some random result. I think that's been a poor missions model in the American church that has to come to an end. We need to get super strategic. We need to get intentional about where we're sending our people. We need to make sure that we're using the available resources that God's put in our hands to the best possible way. And Mission of Mercy, I believe, has a tremendous model of helping local churches go back to the same communities and countries all over the world over and over again. They have a model that allows your church people to get to know people in a community somewhere around the world and to see projects come to fruition, to see lives change. They're highly accountable. They're very strategic in what they do. I like them, and I want you to go at least have a conversation with them tonight, all right? In part, this is kind of the theme of our conference is to have conversations one with another. And so tonight, we're gonna, this is not your normal sit and listen to a speaker kind of conference. We're going to have conversations. I'm going to pause. I'm going to ask you questions. I'm going to give you a chance to respond digitally tonight. And by the way, uh, I, I'm, I love Twitter and Facebook. I think it's, a, it's, I think it's a, a cheap imitation of a real conversation, but at least sometimes that's a good conversation starter. And uh, so tonight, if, you, uh, if you're on Twitter or Facebook, the hashtag is NLCConf, or NLCONF, N-L-C-O-N-F. 
There's the hashtag. If you uh, have something you want to share, uh, put the hashtag on it. Uh, I'm Pastor Brady on, on Twitter. I, I'll follow you back. I'll have conversations with you. I enjoy getting to know each other. Uh, there's a lot of the pastors that around leaders around the country I've gotten to know just by following them. I feel like I know them because I'm, I, I hear them, I listen to them, I read their blogs, and I'm, I love the conversations that start with Twitter, okay? All right, to, the, the, the message tonight uh, is a... Let me just say this. There are times when, you know, many of you preach and teach on a regular basis. There are times when you get up and it is, you're full, you're, you know what you're going to say because you've, you, the topic that you're talking about is, is right in your wheelhouse. It's a part of who you are. And tonight, this is that topic for me. This is a topic that I could stand without any notes and talk for hours about because God has done something so deeply in me on this subject. And it, it has been, and I believe it's, it's a topic, it's a subject matter that, uh, by the way, I'm not going to talk for hours. Just put you at ease, all right? We're going to get out of here at a good time. But like, man. So, didn't he, so anyway, um, this is a topic that I believe if you were leaning your ear to the culture right now, if you were really paying attention, listening, if you were to get outside your church walls and go to people's businesses, hang out at people's apartments, hang out in the, in the schoolyards, hang out with people in parks, and you were to, really were to listen to the people of your city, the place where you live, if you were really listening in, if you were really paying attention, like I've been paying attention for the last several years, here's what's, it's not just a whisper, it is a shout. It is almost like a cry. It's like a prophetic cry coming out of the unchurched. And here's what it is. Where is the family of God? Where is God? Where's the family of God? Where are the mothers and fathers that are supposed to be leading the family of God? Who, who, where is God and where is his family and where are the mothers and fathers that are supposed to be leading this family? That's what they're longing for. And once they find God and once they find the family of God and once this family of God is led by mothers and fathers, something miraculous, powerful, supernatural begins to happen. We're seeing it right here at New Life. Our church is in the middle of a tremendous transformation right now. We, the church has always been family, and it always had a, uh, you know, a reputation for living in real community with one another. The church is almost 30 years old. The church has gone through this church, this local church, this local congregation has gone through more trauma than just about any local church in America in the last six years. But we're a testimony of what happens when a local church begins to love one another sincerely and to worship God without any shame. We're, we're a testimony. In fact, um, I can't even sing that song. John Egan wrote the song where he sang a while ago, God be praised, out of ashes. I can't even sing that. It just messes me up. Because we were in the ashes. We were the ashes. We were, we were left for dead on the side of the road. We really were a church that today, I, I was looking around, we shouldn't even be having pastor's conferences. We should be selling used cars in this space right now. That's the truth. In a 13-month period, we had a scandal. It was on the front page of every newspaper, and we had a murder in, a, in our parking lot. Killed two of our girls, injured others in 13 months. And I have to say, I have to say this. I was with a group of pastors, and a, this pastor was really aggravated because of a bad Facebook post, and he felt like it was damaging his church. I mean, I, I listened to him for a long time. I just looked at him and said, dude, your church is more resilient than that. If it's not, shut the door now. Throw away the key. Listen, the kingdom of heaven is advancing violently. I mean, it, it, listen, there's no, I mean, we've we faced, we've been in the valley of the shadow of death. And we're on the other side of that. Let me just give you good news today. If some of you are discouraged about your church and you wonder if your church is going to make, if your church is built on the foundation of Christ, the resurrected Christ, the truth of the scriptures and the presence of the living God, your church is going to make it just fine, I can promise you. Just fine. You're going to be okay. 
And I'm not saying that to minimize what you're feeling right now. I know what it feels like to feel like the weight of the world, the heaviness of everything is on you, to feel like you're a complete failure, like you're never going to wake up and see a better day with sunshine. I know all those feelings. If you're feeling depressed or heavy or sad, I can understand exactly what you're feeling. But I got good news for you tonight. The valley's not your home. And I love the, the 23rd Psalm says we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't camp out there. It's not our home. And the reason you can walk through, this is none of my message, by the way. So uh, this, this is all free of charge, by the way. Okay, so let me tell you something about the 23rd Psalm. It says, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because he's with us. He's with us. And I'm just telling you, I just feel so strong to, to shake. The, I just want to shake tonight and say, listen to me. Listen to me very closely. Your church is going to make it. You're going you're gonna to survive you're going to thrive again. The sun will come up again. God is with you. And if you're in the palm of his hand, let me say no power of hell and no scheme of man can take you from the palm of his hand. He is right there with you as a pastor and a leader tonight. I want you to really receive that tonight, okay? I, um, so tonight, tonight I want to talk to you about being mothers and fathers. About leading the church like a mother and a father. I... Um, I was just a young pastor. I was 31 years old, pastoring a church in Hereford, Texas. Any, anybody from the Republic of Texas here tonight? All right. I like that. I'm, I'm waiting any moment for them to secede and become their own nation. It's going to happen. Oh, their own Navy and everything. I think it's going to happen. And um, <laughs> I lived there long enough to know. I know what Texas arrogance is all about. I get all that. You know, so I love, I love Texas. I've lived there most of my adult life, you know. Best friends are from there. And, uh, <laughs> but... Um, I was pastoring in Hereford, Texas, where there was a million head of cattle and 15,000 people in the city limits. You know what it smelled like in July there? I mean, I'm telling you. Like money is what they said. <laughs> I didn't get any of that money. But I was 31 years old. I, um, I, I, didn't, I didn't come into being a pastor like a son. I didn't, I didn't walk into my pastoral vocation and calling and leading like a son. When I was born, the doctors told my parents that I had a, a, a pulmonary valve that was defective. And in 1967, when I was born, 45 years ago, the technology, the surgery, the medical uh, skills were not there. Most of the babies that were born with my congenital defect died within a few months. Fortunately for me, my parents, their, my pediatrician in Shreveport, Louisiana, of all places, uh, knew of a doctor in Houston, Texas named Denton Cooley who was doing experimental research on open heart surgeries over babies and, and my pediatrician called him. He immediately got me into Houston and, and so they did surgery and, and not to be Captain Obvious, but I survived. And, um, <laughs> but um, it's not a hologram. This is really me. And, um, and so that day, my, that he did eight surgeries. Six of the babies died that day. Me and a girl from Romania were the only two that survived surgery that day. My parents literally waited in the waiting room and six other parents were told that day that their babies didn't survive. My, I was near the end of the day. The doctor came in and said, you, your, your son's going to make it. But let me just say this to you. He's going to be very fragile, and he probably won't live until he's about 15 to 18 years old. That's all I can do for him. But at some point around his teenage years, 15, 16, or 17, uh, it's going to give out, and there's nothing I can do for him. So just have it, let him have a good life. Enjoy him. But he's not going to be around after 15 to 18 years. That was good news. You know, at least they're going to have a little time with me. And uh, so I grew up with that shadow over me as a young man that only had a little bit of time left. And I, that was, my parents never really told me that, but I knew it. I could feel it. I, I was at the doctor all the time. I, I didn't feel like the other kids. But my, so my dad, mom, let me grow up like Tom Sawyer. I mean, literally, Huckleberry Finn is who I was. I had a hatchet, a gun, and a horse at nine years old. <laughs> I'm, 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 not, I'm not exaggerating. 
I was a wild man, child, nine-year-old, shooting, throwing. Um, I mean, I killed stuff and skinned stuff and ate stuff the day I killed. All that, all that bloody stuff that all you, Graham, you know, Colorado people, you don't get it. I'm, I'm telling you, I grew up redneck. <laughs> all other rednecks in the world are required to come to my hometown at least once in their life where I grew up to pay homage to redneckdom there. That's where I'm from. But I was grateful that my parents did not put fear in me. My parents weren't afraid of that, any of that, what the doctor told them. They let me run wild. They let me be who I am. But I did grow up thinking that my time was short. And somewhere along the way, I realized I got a short amount of time to do a lot of living. I got a little bit of time to do a lot of living. So as a young man, when I was 22 years old, I, I graduated from the dean's list. I owned a home at 22. I had a full-time job at 22, and I was married at 22. I didn't waste any time. <laughs> I mean, I did it all. I got it all. I mean, if I'm going to get married, I'm going to have kids, I'm going to own a house, I'm going to get a job, I'm going to do it all, i got to get it done because I don't know how many years I have. And that, that was always kind of hanging over me. And what happened, what, what would what begin to creep into my soul was the idea of performing and doing and ambition. I was the most ambitious 20-something you've ever been around. I was super ambitious. I mean, I was going to change the world. If I was only had a short time, I'm going to change the world before I go. I mean, that crept inside of me. So I became a pastor at 31 years old. There were 50 people in the church. The church was 100 years old, the oldest church in the city. I was 31. I didn't have a clue. I couldn't even spell clue. And but one, one thing I did know, I was gonna, not, not going to fail. See, I'd made this inner vow in my life, but I'm not going to fail. And I, I made a couple of inner vows. I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to be unsuccessful. And I'm not going to be poor. And I just said, I mean, I'm not going to, not going to, so all that in me is driving me at 31 years old. Every time I'm preaching, that slave mentality is coming out of me. I'm on, I'm, listen, I'm on the treadmill of God, and I am running as hard as I can, accomplishing as much as I can, thinking that I've got to do more and more for God. And over time, this slave mentality started creeping into me. I didn't even know it until I sat at a men's retreat. And if you're from here, it's Buena Vista or Buena Vista, but I... The pronouncement is, I think it's Buena Vista, even though they disagree with me there, but it's Buena Vista. So I'm sitting there at a men's retreat, nonetheless, irregardless. So I'm sitting there at a men's retreat for three days with a group of men from my church. And this guy, uh, probably none of you have ever heard of, he's been a pastor for about 35, 40 years, named Clark Whitten, one of my favorite guys in the world, begins to tell me about grace, and I've never heard grace the way he thought it. He began to show me scriptures about grace and son sonship, that I'd never heard. And I realized I'm a slave. I'm, I'm, I am enslaved to the idea of earning and performing and outworking and doing more than everybody else. I was a slave, and I knew it for the first time in my life. I can relate to a guy named Peter. Peter I like Peter, by the way. He's my favorite disciple. Loud mouth, cutting people's ears off. Jumping out of boats when nobody would jump out of boats. I liked him. I can relate to Peter. Peter was a wild man. Peter was always saying the wrong thing, trying to build altars when he should have been worshiping. All these th stories about Peter. And um, Peter, Peter was the one that said, I'll never abandon you, Jesus. I'll never do it. I'll always be good at doing things for God. But when push came to shove, when the pressure came in the courtyard that night, when a young servant girl looked at him and asked him if he was a follower of this Galilean, he said no. Three times he denied Christ. 
He walked away with just tremendous shame and guilt. And listen, unless you've been a slave like I have, the one thing you do not want to do is disappoint anyone. If, you, if you've ever been captured by slavery, spiritual slavery, the one thing you do not want to do, the one thing that you will avoid at all cost is disappointing someone. And Peter was a consummate performer. Peter was a consummate, hey, look at me. They were always arguing about which one was the greatest. Peter, James, and John were having an ongoing debate all the time about who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And they all three believed they were. They really did. Because they were all good at what they were doing. They were experts. They were skilled. And can you imagine the embarrassment, the shame of Peter as he is out on his fishing boat, giving up on the idea of ever being a disciple of Jesus. Jesus had told him, you will be fishers of men. Instead, he's back on his fishing boat being fishers of fish. <laughs> Guilty and embarrassed and ashamed. And then one day, Jesus showed up for breakfast. On the, on, after the resurrection, Jesus showed up. And Peter saw him again. And Peter was the one that hiked up his skirt or whatever it was he was wearing. I always think it's skirts. I'm, from the, I'm a redneck, remember. I don't see any robes. Those are all skirts to me, you know. So he hiked up his skirt and jumped off the boat and swam up and embraced Jesus. And Jesus said something really odd to Peter. He said, Peter, do you love me? And if you ask a good slave, a good spiritual slave, that question, the answer is, yeah, I love you. I want to do anything I can for you. Jesus said to Peter, he says these three things. He says, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. John 21. He's telling Peter, Peter, I want you to be a pastor. I want you to be a father to my church. I want you to be a father. I want you to lead my church like a father. I was thinking today, Pastor Peter. I don't think he ever saw himself that way. I think he, was, he would have been stunned that he was going to be called pastor. When I was growing up, I, I felt this call of pastor on my life when I was a teenager. And I made God a deal. God, I will do anything for you. I will charge hell with my hair on fire with a water pistol in my hand, but please do not ever make me be a pastor. Please, God, don't let me be a pastor. Because I never knew a pastor I really respected that much or even liked. They were only around for two years and they got voted out because the church was mad at them and they live in a crummy little parsonage right next to the church where I attended. And I said, God, please, if you live in a crummy little parsonage, I'm so sorry, but listen, I didn't want to live. <laughs> I just thought of that. There may be a lot of you who live in a crummy little parsonage right next to the church. Sorry. Hey, I'm sure it's awesome on the inside. It's awesome. <laughs> a real fixer-upper, huh? Yep. But anyway, I can just see that little house, little two-bedroom, wood-frame house next to the church. And he, it's like he was always at work. He could never leave the church. And I was thinking, I don't want to be that guy. Underpaid, overworked, in a crummy little house. You know what my first job was? I lived in Hereford, Texas, and I lived in a parsonage. And don't ever tell God what you don't want to do. It was a nice parsonage. It wasn't crummy. It was nice. Okay. It would never live there again. Somewhere along the way between the boat and 1 Peter 5, Peter had caught father. Certainly he suffered enough. He was in prison. He was beaten for his faith. He was persecuted for following Jesus after the resurrection. And listen to the letter that Peter writes. I want you to read this with this very familiar text tonight. It says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Serving as overseers, not because you must. See, that's a good slave. Slaves think you have to do things. Mothers and fathers think it's a privilege to get to do things. He says, not because you must, not because I'm telling you to, but because his calling is on your life, but because you are willing. 
You know, I think it's an interesting question. And if I were to say, how many of you would do something else if you could? If, if you could make the same money you're making now doing something else besides being a pastor, would you do it? It's a good question to ask. I'm telling you, that's a, that, I, I can tell you right now, in the world, in the, in the U.S., it would be over, over 50% of pastors would say they, could, they would do something else. If they could make the same money and take care of their family, they would not want the pressures of being a pastor. They wouldn't do it anymore. That's, it's sad, but I, I've, I've had conversations recently with pastors who have said that to me. Not because you must, but because you're willing. Not because you feel trapped in a job that, that you know, only, the only thing I have is a seminary degree. It's either sell used cars or be a pastor. And then listen to what he says as God wants you to be. And it says, not greedy for money. Of all the, of all the sinful vices that God could have, or Peter could have pointed out that would entrap a pastor. How about some, he says nothing about sexual sin or, or pride or arrogance. He says, listen, don't be greedy for money. I mean, 2,000 years ago, this was a trap that pastors were falling into. They were doing it for the money. He says, but be eager to serve. Now, that's a fascinating phrase right there. Underline that because this is, a, this is a good Sunday sermon. I'm about to give you a Sunday sermon for free right here. That word, that phrase, eager to serve, is that, that Greek, the Greek wording there means I've already made up my mind to serve before I know of the opportunity. I've already made up my mind to serve you. How can I serve you? I'm not looking for opportunities to serve. I've already made up my mind to serve. Now, whenever I see the opportunity, I'm gonna, I don't have to think about it. I'm just going to serve. So, so the natural inclination for the pastor is to serve. It says, not lording it over those entrusted to you. By the way, slaves are good at lording it over one another, being the boss, reminding people of who the boss is. Listen, I don't, have to, I don't tell my staff that I'm the boss. I can't remember the last time I said, look, guys, remember, I'm the boss here. I don't go home and tell Pam I'm the boss. By the way, that's not a good idea. 20, uh, 20, and I am more of an egalitarian than a complementarian. Pam and I work together well, and we complement one another. But, and I believe the men should take the burden of leadership at home and the burden of leadership at the church, but not the status of leadership. So that was my theology in five seconds there. But the point I'm making is this. I don't have to go home and tell Pam, hey, Pam, remember now, I'm, I'm the boss. Really? Like three days later when I can open my right eye, then I'll... I'll... <laughs> and it says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. By the way, don't ever ask your people to do something you're not doing. If you ask them to come to the prayer meeting, you need to come to the prayer meeting. If you ask them to give, we better be giving. If you're asking them to serve in your city, serve in your city. If you ask them to lead a small group, lead a small group. Don't do anything you're not asking your people to do. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. And by the way, young men and women want to submit. They really do. It's just hard to find someone to submit to. Listen, young men and women are not as rebellious as we've imagined. They want to be fathered. They want to be mothered. Ask them. We've got a whole crowd of 20-somethings here. Ask them, are you resistant to a godly man or a woman coming into your life and giving you spiritual direction in a way that Jesus would? <laughs> no. In fact, please send them to us. Our hearts are longing for Their hearts are longing for moms and dads. They're begging, where's mom, where's dad? So he wasn't talking to somebody that was rebellious. He was talking to the older folks here, too. 
Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because, my kids and I talked about this scripture last night, God opposes the proud. By the way, I don't want God on the other's line of scrimmage against me. I want him on my team and my huddle, don't you? I don't want him on the other team. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. You see, slaves and orphans, they don't really believe that. Orphans, and I want to explain this in just a moment, but slaves don't believe that they can get there except by working, and slaves don't believe they can get there except by manipulation. Slaves don't believe they can be promoted unless they work their way toward promotion. Orphans don't believe they can get there and be promoted except they manipulate their way toward promotion. But clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Cast, in verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Do you believe that tonight? Do you believe he's even interested or cares about you? Listen, that, if you can solve that issue tonight, that God knows you and loves you and has the best for you, it solves a whole bunch of leadership issues in our lives. I'm just telling you, it, sol- it, it makes me sleep better at night. It makes me lead better during the day. It makes me pray better when I pray. It makes me worship better when I worship. If I really believe God loves me and I'm on the palm of his hand and he wants the best for me, it solves a lot of leadership issues. All right, so tonight we're going to have a conversation. Here's the first question I'm going to ask you. And get your, get your texting device out, your phone, whatever you have. And this is, not, not, listen, senior pastors, I don't want you to lean over and listen to the answer. One of the things I want here is a bit of anonymity. Because I want you to talk about this later. But I want you to give people permission around you to answer honestly this question. Because the answer might surprise you. Here's the question. Do you feel valued as a person by the people who lead you? All right. Here's the code, text, text, text that code, never, 173929, to that number, 22333. So you can do it online or you can do it on your phone. So text, that, if, you, if you never feel valued by the people that lead you, text that number. If you sometimes feel valued by the people that, that lead you, text that number. If you always feel valued, if you're living in a place right now in a church, in a leadership place, where you feel super valued, then text 17939 or 5 to 22333. Does that make sense? Everybody under 30 got that, just like that. Everybody over 40, is their stomach is in a knot right now. Look at that. Bam. Wow. Looks like we have some conversations that might happen here in the next couple of days. Because about, I don't know, what is that, 64% of people? No, 59, okay. Oh, okay, here, here the always people just kicked in. I don't want my pastor to feel bad. That's interesting. That's about where I thought. That's big, actually, that 37% of you always feel honored by the people that are leading. That's huge. That's huge. And I think 4%, that's a lie up there, so we'll check that. You're just being nice because you're sitting right next to the person right now. (laughs) Come tell me later. It's coming, though, real time. I love this. We're going to have this throughout the conference, have real-time discussions. I want to see what you're thinking. Wouldn't wouldn't this be a great tool, though, even if you had a church of 50 or 5,000, it doesn't matter. What if you asked a question and you could get real-time thoughts from the people you're talking to? about questions. It's hard to read them sometimes, but if they were honest, that's interesting. Keep, we're going to come back to that, so keep texting. Keep that up for just a moment. If you haven't sent I want you to, I want to hear your answer. About 203 of you have sent in so far. But we're, 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 we love using this because it gives me feedback right away of where, you're, where you are in your life and what's really happening, if you're being honest. And that's, pretty, that, that's not surprising to me. And so tonight, I want to talk to you about two groups of people, orphans, or three groups, orphans and slaves, and sons. 
And I want to talk to you about what it means to be a mother and a father in the local church because this is the cry of our culture. Mothers and fathers are so desperately needed. And all of us, all of us start off, by the way, let me just say this to you. All of us start off this pastoral vocation, this pastoral journey with baggage. We all come into this journey flawed. I just want you to know that's, 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 it's not, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I'm thinking like a slave or I'm thinking like an orphan. I'm becoming a son. I'm becoming a daughter. Because we all start off like Peter in a flawed way. God takes the imperfect people and somehow by the grace of the Holy Spirit causes us to be productive for the kingdom of heaven. It's a miracle, right? All of us are miracles. There's no way that, I mean, very few of us were born with a natural inclination to pastor people in an authentic way the way Jesus did. How many of you were born like that? Or how many of you had to learn it and have learned it by revelation and prayer and forgiveness and repentance? Raise your hand. Can I have real human beings raise their hand with me tonight? See, all of us come into this journey with this flaw, with this, that we're broken, we're messy, and God somehow along the way puts his hand on us like he did at me at 31 years old. And he began to shape me and form me and begin to have conversations with me. He said, Brady, you're a slave, but you're better than that. You're built better than that. I have better things for you. I, I have sonship for you. And along the way, I've met these orphans. I, I, I don't ever feel, feel like I've ever felt orphaned because I, one of the things my mom and dad did really well is they told me they loved me and were proud of me almost every day. My dad hugged me, kissed me. He was a very affectionate, tender, strong guy, tough guy, but just a really tender dad. I felt, always felt loved growing up. I never felt rejected or abandoned. But I, along the way, I've run into some really significant orphan leaders. Orphans are people that never have felt welcomed, they, they, the way I describe orphans are people that really understand the power of love. They understand it's a powerful tool, but they use it as a weapon. They, mani- they manipulate their relationships. They're people that have never felt really accepted, like they have a place to belong. Remember back in the, for some of you that are a little older, back in the 90s, or, uh, when in, in Eastern Europe especially, when the Iron Curtain was lifted, communism was overthrown, the walls were coming down. Especially in the country of Romania, there was an unbelievable number of orphanages there. And a friend of mine actually was one of the first Americans into Romania after the Iron Curtain fell. And what happened when the Iron Curtain came away, it showed the ugly side of communism. That when you take God out of a country, when you take the love of Christ out of a country, the care for the poor and the care for the widows, the care for the orphan goes away and the government takes over. And it leaves a giant gaping wound in the heart of a nation. Because the church is the one that's supposed to come around and love the orphan. It's the church that was always called to take care of the widow. And we're going to talk about that in the next three days. Our call to do that. But in Romania, the church was non-existent. All these orphans were thrown into these sterile, cinder block wall orphanages. And one of my friends, was, as a young man, was one of the first ones in to try to rescue some of these young men and women. And he said one day he was walking into this Romanian orphanage. They were walking on like a, a narrow path and... This little cute seven-year-old girl came running up to him, and she said, beautiful little Romanian brown eyes and dark hair. And, and he just, all he, all he could do was, you know, he did the, everything that we would do. He reached down, and he grabbed her, and he put his hands on her to pick her up and hug her. And the, the, the orphanage leader went, no, 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 don't touch her. And my friend just stepped away and was like, why? He said, don't touch her. He goes, why? I just want to give her a hug. He said, that's the worst thing you can do right now. He goes, why is it? Why can't I hug this little girl? He says, it's not the hug. It's the moment that you walk away from her and you go inside that room. She's going to beat her head on that sidewalk wondering why you rejected her and left her. 
and then I'm going to have to deal with a bloody forehead the rest of the night. We're working with her. She doesn't know how to receive love. She's never received love. So all she's going to do once you walk away from her is beat her head on that concrete. Don't pick her up and hug her. Let us love her. Let us, let us work with her. And in a few years when you come back, she'll be ready for your hug. That's an extreme story. But that's what happens in the heart of an orphan. They've never been, they don't understand how to receive it. They don't know how to give it. They, they somehow, somewhere along their life, something went wrong in their life and they just, they don't, they don't know how to feel. They don't understand what it means to, to bond with someone. They don't know what authentic relationships feel like. They don't know what covenant friendships are, are, are about. They don't get it. They don't. And so they end up, some of them end up receiving Christ and end up as pastors and leaders. I know them. I know some high profile leaders that they have classic symptoms of orphan on them. And they're, they're godly, they love God, they just don't know how to deal with love. They don't know how to deal with real relationship. They don't know how to deal with friendship. Here's what I wrote down for about orphan leaders. And I, there's just three things, but they're big. The first thing, about, the first thing that you can spot on, a, on an orphan leader is they use love for reward or punishment. They, 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 they see the power of love, but they use it as reward or punishment. I, there was a, there's a pastor, I, I know one of his staff people, a person that works with him, and he says, Brady, I need to talk to you. So I'm, I, I don't know how to deal with this. He says, there's times when our, our pastor will just come into the office and he'll say to everybody, hey, drop everything, we're all going to the beach. Everything, drop it, we're all going to the beach for the day. I looked at him and went, dude, that's a pretty good boss. <laughs> like, what, and the, what's the problem? He goes, he says, Brady, the problem is he expects the same performance out of us and productivity out of us minus that day. In fact, he says it'll be, it'll be a busy season. Like We're preparing for something. We're, we're building small groups or we're trying to do something and we're discipling people. But all of a sudden, we got a whole day taken out of our schedule to go to the beach because he, wants to, he, he understands he can win us over with love, but then he expects us to do the same amount of work so you know what happens, Brady? We spend all day at the beach and we all come back to the office and we spend the rest of the night getting our work done. He said, the day at the beach, I don't care about the day at the beach. I'd rather be home with my family. See, this is what orphans do. Orphans are destructive with their love. They'll kill you with their love. They don't know how to give and receive. Instead, a father and a mother would say, hey, guys, I understand we're all busy. When's a good time for all of us to go to the beach? I want to do something fun together as a staff, but I don't want to put any of you under any pressure to get your jobs done, so let's figure out a good time to all go do this together so we can all enjoy it. That's the difference between an orphan and a father. Orphans beat you up with love. They use love as a weapon. Orphans will tell you things like this. Read my silence. Orphans will tell you things like, hey, maybe you're on the inside. In fact, orphans, you never know if you're in or out. You never know if you're in the inner circle or out, if you've been accepted or rejected, and they don't even know. There's always this unsettled feeling around them of, do I belong to them? Am I with them? Am I their buddy? Am I not? You know what I'm talking about. You've been around them. Where, do I fit here? Do I belong here? Well, sometimes when they want to get something out of you, they overwhelm you with love. They shower you with love. They pound you with love. Gifts and trips and stuff. But when they want to punish you, just as quickly, they pull their love away from you and then you're left wondering, do I belong or not? Orphans. And they've become leaders. And listen, their destruction is all over the local church right now. 
Orphan leaders are doing tremendous damage. Here's the second thing I've noticed about these orphan leaders. They have this long list of failed relationships. And the common denominator in all of these failed relationships is them. And they don't see that. I mean, they, got, they have scattered carcasses a mile behind them of dead, broken relationships, burned. You can see the smoke rising from 20 miles behind them from all the burnt bridges of their lives. They, they, just, they just cannot stay in a long-term, sustainable relationship because at some point in the process, they will hijack it and sabotage it and blow it up because they just don't know how to be friends for, many, for long. They just can't do it. They're not wired correctly. They're so broken on the inside. They just cannot be that good a friend to you for that long a time. It's going to blow up at some point. And the common denominator is them. And they'll have an excuse for why. And it's always someone else's fault. Any time you hear someone that consistently blames other people for broken relationships, you're listening to an orphan. Listen, there's, there's one person that's common, the common denominator in all those stories. You. Me. Here, here's another thing that I've noticed about orphans. And I think this is revelatory for me at least. And it's, it's made me tap the brake more than anybody but myself and God knows. Because I don't want to be this way. Orphan leaders tend, though, to make impulsive decisions with little input from other people. You want people to, Glenn Packham gave me this, so I'm going to give him credit tonight, he's sitting here. You want people to buy in, you got to let them weigh in. You want them to buy in, you got to weigh in. I don't know, you may have stolen that from somebody too, probably. You probably did. You borrowed it, didn't you? You did. Or you probably heard me say it, then you repeated it, right. <laughs> right? Yeah, but if you want them to buy in, you got to let them weigh in. Well, here's the point. Orphan leaders don't want you to weigh in because it requires relationship. Listen, that's too much much hassle. So I'm just going to be impulsive and tell you what to do. Uh, Impulsive, if if you're around an impulsive leader that's always making quick, bam, decisions, and and they'll, they'll say things like this, hey, let's throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. Let me just tell you something. That's frustrating to your team, by the way, and somebody's having to clean up those walls after you throw it against it. I mean, it's some of the worst leadership I've ever heard in my life to say that. Throw it against the wall and see if it sticks? How about being thoughtful and prayerful and talking and praying and planning? And leave the walls alone. (laughs) And then there's our slaves, and let me tell you something. I know a slave, brother, because I've been one. I'm the best slave in this room that's been redeemed. I, I, there's nobody in this, in this room that's ran harder trying to prove something to somebody than me. Let me tell you something about slave leaders. They really do believe their position is based on their own merits and talents. They, they are performance-driven. They, they are people that are constantly threatened by others. Everyone is a competitor. I grew up playing sports. Let me tell you something. Some of the biggest churches in America are run by competitive ex-athletes who run their church and run their ministries like a football coach. Rub some dirt on it. Get back in the game. Stop your whining. Go do it. Get it done. They're coaches. And they even write books about coaching. I don't mind any of that. Listen, I don't mind leadership. I enjoy reading every leadership book. I've read them all. I enjoy leadership. We just can't lead at the expense of being a father. We can't lead and leave people in our wake. 
we're not competing with one another. We're our brothers and sisters, right? But they're, they're constantly threatened by others. They're highly competitive and are only in relationships with people who can help them. Here's a good conversation. How many friends do you have that can't do anything for you? <laughs> um, this is honest. This is raw and real. How many, how many friends, real friends, do you have that can't do something for you? I'm talking about people you're serving, people you're helping. They don't have a dime to give you. They don't have any influence to give you. They don't have, they don't have nothing. I love the story of the Good Samaritan, and Jesus kind of thought it was a good story too. The Samaritan who picked up the Jewish person, and the Samaritan took the Jewish person to a hotel, paid for all of his bandages and left money there for anything that might. That's, that's what I'm talking about. Number four, slave leaders are usually the smartest people in the room, and they know it. By the way, that's pretty rare around here. Honestly, I'm very rarely the smartest guy in the room. I'm a smart guy. I'm not stupid. or I'm not. I'm not. I mean, but I'm, and I read. But I'm going to tell you something. I, years ago, I would have never led the way I'm leading right now. I would have made sure I'm the smartest guy in the room. And, and there's a reason why we have such a great team here is because I got over that a long time ago. I'm really not the smartest guy on our staff at all. I'm, I'm the best looking. <laughs> and the most humble. <laughs> it drives me nuts, though, how many pastors are threatened by young, smart people. They're threatened by them. They're a threat. They're going to take my spot. Really, I want them to have my spot. Please take my spot. Here's number five. They rarely, rarely reveal true feelings and fears. Hardly ever. Very plastic. Very polished. I, there's a difference between being slick and sloppy. I get that. I don't believe in being sloppy either. I believe, I, I'm prepared tonight. I, I studied. I'm prepared for this. But I don't want to be slick. It doesn't have to be performed and rehearsed. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be everything perfect. I'm not trying to step on any of your toes, but I know, I know a pastor. I just heard this the other day, and it just, oh. So I'm, I'm, I know a pastor who comes in after the service, and they all have to rehearse it again after the service. And, because, and, they, and they, like, they all come back in at 2 o'clock after the church service, and they all review what happened in the church service. Look, I'd rather my pastoral staff be out eating lunch with some of the people in the church. We can talk about this on Tuesday, things that went awfully wrong. Quit, quit worrying about perfection. I'm, I'm no fan of sloppiness. Not at all. You won't find any, I hope you don't see anything sloppy around here in the next three days, but it's not going to be slick either. There's room for making mistakes. There's room for errors because if you don't make room for errors, you're not leaving any room for experimentation. No, there's no experiments. And, and, and I found that slave leaders hardly ever talk about what's really going on in their own heart. They, really, they hardly ever talk about their own failures, their own missteps. Here's one that drives me nuts, number six. I don't know if we'll have a conference again. Maybe the last conference we have here, so I'm making everybody mad here, but, and my nose is running. There you go, slick, right there, right? You got a snotty nose. <laughs> McLaren and D just wore off around 7.30. It's that 12-hour thing, you know? <laughs> I should have taken another one, yeah. 
Here's one, number six, slave leaders that are notorious about is they, they are very prone to hype as a means to create a sense of momentum. They're the fake it till you make it crowd. <laughs> there are pastors I follow on Twitter that drive me nuts. And I, and I follow them just because it reminds me to stop doing that. <laughs> I mean, oh. I, there was a pastor not long ago who said, this weekend is going to be the most historic weekend in the history of our church. That was a Friday. I'll follow this guy. Every Friday he's got a good Friday tweet. Okay, so that was, one, that was Friday. This, this Friday is going to be the most historic weekend in our church. Now, that may be true. There are some times that are very historic in the life of our church. I can get that. You know what the next Friday tweet was? This weekend is going to be the most insane weekend in the life of our church. The next Friday, this weekend, it is, you will not believe how amazing this weekend is going to be. Really? Does it have to be the Super Bowl every single Sunday? Or can sometimes you hit a good solid double in the gap and it be a, let's go home. <laughs> Let me just tell you something. None of you are that good a preacher. I'm not that good a preacher. I know there's been a, only a handful of times this year that I've gone home to Pam and said, honey, nailed it. Nailed it. I'm telling you, maybe five times. That was unbelievable. Pam, that's the best I can preach that right there. Nobody's ever going to preach that better than I just preached that right there. Now, most of us go home feeling like a sack of potatoes, right? Realizing, man, there's eight things I forgot to say. And, that they, and, and Tuesday, when I see them in the store, they're not even going to remember the title of the sermon. Listen, listen, I believe we have created a culture in the local church that is so hype-driven. You know what my big concern is? I don't believe people know the difference between hype and the Holy Spirit anymore. I don't think. I think the Holy Spirit could completely disappear from a lot of our worship gatherings, and we could keep hyping it up for several years before anybody could figure it out. Because we, there are pastors with that big a personality. They've got that kind of charisma. They can charm their way past. They can fake it till they make it. That's a good slave at work right there. Here's the number seven. This is a trait of a slave leader. They rarely apologize. They just don't apologize. Now here, they may say things like this. Sorry that hurt you. That's a lame apology, by the way. Sorry that hurt you. Or they'll say things like, um, wish I'd said that differently. Didn't mean to say it that way. That's not an apology. That's barely an admission that anything went wrong. An apology is this. I realize that I was a complete knucklehead when I said that to you. And please, please, please forgive me. I am so, so sorry. I, I, I never, ever want to hurt you. I never, ever, ever, ever want to do anything to damage you. Please, please forgive me. If you can find any grace in your life for me, please forgive me. Not sorry that hurt you. They don't apologize. Because by apologizing, you're admitting you failed and you fell short. Here's number eight. This is the last thing. There's a lot more because, I'm, again, I'm, I'm the preeminent slave in this room. Number eight, and this is it. This is the bottom line for a slave. They're constantly trying to prove something to someone. Sometimes a dead dad still trying to prove something to a dead parent. Or a pastor they haven't seen in 30 years. 
our coach that they had in middle school, our teacher that they respected in junior high, whatever. Slaves are trying to prove something to someone. I remember, let me tell you something, I remember the great, when we sang It Was For Freedom, which I sing pretty good, by the way, and I was really good. And um, when we sing that, you know what I think about? I remember the day the Lord set me free from this, having to prove myself to someone. Let me tell you something, it's the greatest liberty you'll ever have in your life. When you can wake up every morning, I'm, a, I'm Brady, I'm married to Pam, I've got two pretty good kids, I pastor a great church, i got good friends, I don't have to prove anything today. doesn't mean I'm not working hard. I am working hard. I work hard. I don't have to prove anything. I, I'm not worried if you like me or not. I want to be liked. I'm not worried about it, though. Some people are going to like me and some people are not. I'm not trying to make you not like me, I'm not, but I'm not trying to make you like me either. It's so liberating to stand in front of your congregation and not feel that I'm having to preach for food every Sunday. To actually love them. And tell them the truth in a loving way and then and, and walk with them and not worry about their vote. All right, let me give you some, are you okay with time? I'm, I'm just going to give you a few more minutes, all right? This is mothers and fathers. Let me give you some traits of a mother and a father. Number one is they make it easy for people to leave and return. In Luke chapter 15, the beautiful story, my favorite parable, the most, I, I think the most significant parable Jesus ever told was the parable of the prodigal son. I think it's the most significant one because it reveals the kind of father that God is. He was trying to tell him, this is my father in heaven. You want to know what my father in heaven is like? Let me tell you about him. The prodigal leaves and then the prodigal comes to his senses in the pig pen. He's filthy. And he comes back and he's rehearsing this canned speech. Father, I've failed. Please forgive me. He's got slave talk coming out of him. Father, forgive me. I'll be like one of your hired men. I'm not worthy to be your son. I'll be like one of your hired men. And the father ignores all that and runs out to him and embraces him and grabs him. And he says, this son of mine was dead, but he's alive. He's coming back home. And the son goes, Father, uh, listen, I have, Father, I've sinned. And please just accept me like one of your slaves. And, and the dad just ignores it and says, son, this son of mine, son. They make it easy to leave and easy to return. And we're going to talk about this in one of our breakouts later on this week about how to send out sons and daughters to plant churches. There's a lot of young men and women in churches right now that want to go plant, but all, all they're having are divorces. They don't celebrate weddings. They're celebrating divorces. I would, I'm much better to celebrate weddings at New Life than divorces. And most of the time when a staff person or a volunteer or a key person leaves your church, it's, it's, it's treated like a divorce and not like a wedding. The kingdom of heaven is about weddings, not divorces. My mentor, Jimmy Evans, dear friend of mine, pastors at Trinity in Amarillo, this is a good Texas saying. He goes, Brady, I can hear him saying it to me. If they're your dog, you don't have to put them on a leash. That's some deep revelation right there. <laughs> That's good stuff right there. And that's the way I treat staff around. The staff, leaders, team, I don't own them. We're serving together. We love each other. But when God puts their hand on them to leave and go plant a church, let's celebrate a wedding. And listen, by the way, I've sent out some spectacular team. I've sent out Ross Parsley. I've sent out Aaron Stern. Rob Brindle. I've sent out some stellar staff. I mean staff that, I mean, are 
are the, some of the best staff in America. When God spoke to them to leave, I needed them here, by the way. We were going through a tough stretch. It would have been easy for me to say, hey, hold on tight. Stay here. No, God's call was on their life. And by the way, God sent other sons and daughters to replace them. And they are blessed. We are blessed. It was a wedding and not a divorce. Here's number two. Mothers and fathers, they make it easy for people to leave and return. And, they, and by the way, all those guys are here this week. And none of them have to come back with their heads down. They're all here with their heads up high. They're all speaking at the conference this week because they left as sons and they're coming back as sons. Number two, they, mothers and fathers encourage risk and experiments. I encourage some messiness around here. I just make a little mess. How many of you raised kids? That's the messiest thing in the world. Yeah, you're really not a mom and dad until you've been pooped on. I mean, I, I mean, it's telling you that happens. It. And that, that, that's when you realize, my gosh, I'm a parent. How did this happen? When we say pooped in church. Yeah. That's what happens. But listen, I, I, there's a study one time about, I, I believe in the experiment with fences, with boundaries. There's, I, I love, James Dobson actually, 20 years ago, did some research on this. He, they put a brand new playground in an elementary school Brand new stuff, everything brand new. And no fence, though, around, and there were busy streets around all of the playground. They turned the kids out. <clears throat> they all ran out, brand new equipment. And, and 10 minutes later, all the kids are in the middle of the playground. Nobody's on the outside because there were no fences. Busy streets. They understood the danger, and they all huddled in the middle. So the next day, they put a brand new shiny fence on the outside periphery of the playground, turned the kids out, and they were running everywhere, <clears throat> running everywhere. Playing and enjoying all the playground. That's my, that's my picture of my home. A playground with fences. That's what church should look like. Church should be an experimental playground with boundaries. Fences. For everybody's protection. So the cars don't come in and kids don't go out. I'm the pastor here. My job is to build fences and let people have the playground to themselves. Experiment. Build. Grow. Make failures. But I'm the dad here. So my job is to make sure there's fences so that nobody gets hurt in the process of experimenting. But let the, let the play begin. Go do it. Number three, mothers and fathers love to see their kids succeed, even surpass them. Now this is going to be, I got a lot, some new lifers here. I invited our church to come to these, the conference evening sessions. So I'm not trying to say this to rattle anybody, and I, but I want to say this honestly to the, the, the depth that I feel it. Day one when I came here, I began looking for my replacement. I plan to be here a long time. I know I'm 45, I'm young, I've got plenty of energy, I have passion for this. The point of this, I came here with the idea that I don't want to ever be the pastor who holds on to the baton too long in the race. You know, the, 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 the team that wins a relay race is the team that is, the guy with the baton is running as fast as he can, and he puts the baton in the hand of the guy who is about to take off and run. The team never wins when the pastor is standing still with a baton in his hand way after everybody else has run past him. He's the only one that knows it or doesn't know it. Now, oftentimes, the senior pastor is the last guy to realize he should have handed the baton off. My goal is to find a son, put that baton in his hand, and be the biggest cheerleader he's ever had in his life as he takes this from me one day. Are you even looking for your replacement? Are you even thinking about that? If you're not thinking about it, it won't happen. This, this requires us to be intentional. 
Now, I don't know who that person is. I really don't. I, I haven't spotted that person yet. But I can tell you this. The moment the Lord shows me, I'm going to be one happy dude. Not because I don't like what I do. I love what I do. I just want them to succeed and do well. I'm going to be running fast, too. I'm going to be running fast when I put that thing in his hand. And then I'm, going to go, I'm not going to retire. I'm just going to change spots on the team. Do what God's called me to do. That's the way mom and dad stink. Abram and Callie, I don't want them living with me the rest of their life. I don't. I love them to pieces, but they ain't living in my house forever. Ham and I have got some chasing to do, and they ain't going to be around the house to be watching. They are going to leave the house. <laughs> That's the truth. They're not going to be hanging out with mom and dad and gaming in my basement when they're 30. <laughs> By the way, here's the culture, and we're working hard at this. We're not anywhere near perfection at this, but here's the mark of a team. Teams celebrate with one another, and they, they don't compete with one another. And this is a good question for you to have in the next three days. Are we a team that celebrates with one another, or are we a team that just competes with one another for dad's attention? And we celebrate here when... When Glenn Packham writes a book or Johnny Egan writes the number one song, we celebrate around here. We're happy for that. That's awesome. Using your gifts and your talents, your skills. When young men and women find the love of their life and get married, we celebrate. We love the success. We love the celebration of that. Here's the last thing. Mothers and fathers call out gifts in their children. Let me just say this. Let me explain this just for one moment. Pam and I have adopted, I have a, almost, a, Abram's almost 14 He's almost full-blood Italian. He's got green eyes, dark skin, dark hair. His birth father was a nuclear physicist. Abram is extremely smart. It's very obvious he's not my biological son. <laughs> I'm just serious about that. He was explaining uh, Lego Batman to me before I left, and I have no idea what, what he said. I'm a col- I have a college degree. I could not figure out what he was saying to me. He was explaining, and he was talking at a sixth-grade level to me. He was trying to make me understand you know, so when Abram, Abram was born, I'm so crazy about him and Callie both. When he was born, I was raised in a, in a very rambunctious home where all the boys played sports and all the boys hunted and fished. That's what we all did. And so I just assumed, you know, Abram, I'm adopting this little boy. You know, the first gift I got him was like a $50 baseball glove. We should probably have bought diapers with that, but you know, we were, I went and bought a nice baseball glove for him. He was like two months old. He had, the baseball glove was bigger than his chest. And he had it. I got a picture of him like this, like leaning over with him. I got him propped up. I got like a pillow behind his arm with a glove on his hand. He's looking at me like, what, what, what is that? Well, I was just, and he had a little baseball outfit on because he's going to be a baseball player. Well, he turned five years old, old enough to play t-ball. I sign him up. Now, up to this point, he has no interest in baseballs. If I throw it, it hits him in the face. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, like, he'll outgrow that. He'll outgrow that. He'll learn. Rub a little dirt on it. So six, five years old, t-ball. I, I coach. I'm going to coach my son's team, you know. He's out there playing baseball. The balls are rolling by him. He's thinking about circumference and... He's thinking about physics. I'm thinking about catching and throwing. He has no interest. He gets up to bat. And this T-ball. I mean, he's still like, he just doesn't. 
I just remember how disappointed I was. I went, you're my son. You've got to do this. I'm telling you, here's what the Lord came to me and said. Well, Brady, you know, the Lord came to me. It's, he was five years old. Let me tell you the, Lord, the word the Lord gave me. He said, Brady, I've, I sent Abram to you as a gift. Abram is going to invent something one day. It's going to change the world. Abram is a guy that's going to hold up the glass ball, and everybody's looking at it like this, and Abram's going to look at it like that, and he's going to change the world. He's not wired like you, and that's a good thing. <laughs> he's going to change the world. I told him that. At six years old, he knew I was disappointed. Our kids know when we're disappointed, no matter how hard we hide it. And so I said, Abram, you don't have to be a baseball player. Now, we're going to finish the season because we, start what we, we finish what we start, but you don't have to ever play again if you don't want. And he never has. <laughs> But I told him at six years old, or at five or six years old, I think it was six. And I said, Abram, you're going to invent something one day that's going to change the world. And I never said it again to him. About, I don't know, a year ago, he was at a, a deal with me, of an event here, hanging out with Dad. And he had a nosebleed. So I was speaking, and he had to go get his nose taken care of. So one of our ushers took him to the bathroom to help him clean up his nose, and it was bleeding. And Abram, what do you like to do? Do you like to play baseball? No. What are you going to do when you grow up? I'm going to invent something that's going to change the world. And he started telling the guy, I found, I found this notebook by his bed where he's been writing down ideas. It's pretty good stuff. Stuff that he's been thinking of. Inventions. I didn't know about this notebook. And this usher came to me and said, Brady, you wouldn't believe what Abram said to me. He said he's going to invent something that changed the world. And then he told me like nine things that he's working on right now. See, this is the picture of the local church. You can find volunteers and staff and leaders that look just like you that are little Brady clones and put them into Brady roles and make them do Brady things, or you can call the greatness out of them and find out what God's doing in them, embrace it and call it out of them, and you can send out beautiful sons and daughters. That's our option. So I'm going to end with this story tonight. The, um, I, I'm here tonight to challenge you deeply with this issue. Are you leading like a mother and a father in your church right now? Are you married like a mother and a father? Are you leading your business like a mother and a father? Are you a friend like a mother and a father would be a friend? Not, not long ago, Aaron Stern, who was our mill pastor, a college pastor for a long time here, started it, grew it to several hundred students coming on Friday night. Right before he left to go plant the church up in Fort Collins, he did something I thought was beautiful. He found 50 or so men in our church who really carried father on them. Dads. You know, got that dad. They really carried dad well. And so he preached on it, similar to what I'm preaching on. And he, 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 he has four little boys. And he brought all his little boys on the stage. And he prayed a prayer of blessing over each of his sons in front of all these college kids. And he looked at the college kids and he said, some of you have never had your dad pray like that over you place his hands on you and pray a prayer of blessing over, your, over you. He says, so tonight I'm going to let that happen. I'm going I'm to invite, and he called these men up. I think Brian was part of that. Garvin, some of our pastors were part of that. So all these men lined up down the front, and he said, if you've never had your dad pray a prayer of blessing over you, just come in and get in line. I'm telling you, it was six or seven hundred college kids that formed lines in front of these 50 men. And sobbing, weeping, 
breaking down in front of these, as these men were just praying simple prayers or blessings over these college students. These young men and women were melting in front of them. And here's what was happening. Some of the young men and women were going back to the end of the line to get another dip. They were going to each of the men. <laughs> they saw some of the guys go to all 50 lines or so, you know, but several lines. They just wanted it one more time. I mean, listen, we can talk about church growth and methodology and how to do things better and cooler. That's all. We can talk about all that. I'm not going to talk to you about it, but somebody else can talk to you about that. Here's my heart. If you start leading our church, if we will just start leading our churches like mothers and fathers, you will, you will have to, you will grow and explode, and you will see disciples and lost people flooding your doors if we will simply start leading the local church like mothers and fathers. This is not rocket science, and yet it is. Tonight, here's what I'm asking. There's so many times that we stand in front of our people and we challenge them to respond. Listen, this, this issue has to be wrestled to the ground. You can't give this a casual glance. If you're here tonight and you go, ah, okay, I'll think about that later, I'll make some notes. Listen, you're going to go on doing what you're doing. You're going to be a slave or an orphan the rest of your life. I came to a point when I was 31 years old that I decided I'm wrestling this to the ground. I will not live my life like a slave. God has something better for me. And every day, I'm 45 years old, I wish I could say, every day I wake up perfectly tuned in like a son. I do not. I have to wrestle slavery to the ground. I have to wrestle it to the ground. I have to confront it on a daily basis, on a regular basis. I have to recognize my attitudes and I have to wrestle it, bring it captive under Christ all the time. It wants to creep back into my psyche. I keep finding people I want to prove something to. It's not necessary. Here's what I'm asking tonight. I'm going to ask you tonight, and it's going to be really vulnerable. By the way, you'll never become a mother or father if you're not willing to risk it. If you're going to play it safe tonight, you're going to keep doing what you're doing. I'm asking you tonight to be very honest. This is the first step to living out this call of mother and father is to be honest with yourself. And it's going to require you to do it in front of other people and God. But tonight, if you are here tonight, you say, Pastor Brady, I think I'm leading leading like an orphan. I think think I'm, I'm trying to prove something to somebody. I'm leading like a slave. Tonight, I want you to start wrestling it to the ground. I want you to stand up. Stand up on your feet where you are. You're here and say, I, I, this is in me. I, I, I've, I've got to get this, I've got to wrestle this to the ground. Stand up right where you are. We're going to pray over you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm really proud of you. I mean, that takes a lot to stand up and say that. You're not admitting you're sinful. You're not admitting you're away from God. I'm not asking you that. I'm saying, I realize that the motivation for leading, I, I am... I I am using love as manipulation. I'm using love as a weapon. I am trying to prove something to somebody. I I need need some courage. I I want to wrestle this to the ground. I want to be a mother and a father. That's all I'm asking you tonight. So if you stand up, come on. Don't, Don't walk out of here and leave this opportunity to really start the process. This is a miracle that's about to happen in your heart. I promise you. You're about to sleep better. You're about to pray better. You're about to lead better. You're about to be married better. All of this, I'm telling you, this will change your life. Would you stand tonight? Someone, a few of you are wrestling with it. You just need to stand up. Nobody's going to judge you. We're not, I'm not here to judge any of you. I'm here to help you. I love you. I'm crazy about you. And God is too. You can't imagine how much God wants you to set you free from this. All right? Everybody else just stand up around them. Everybody else just stand right now. Stand up and put your hand on their shoulder. Put your hand on their shoulder. And then put the other hand on your heart. 
let's all pray today, tonight, that we would guard our heart against this. Let's just pray, Father in heaven, thank you that you, you came to adopt us as your sons and daughters. And Lord, I love what, what Paul wrote in Ephesians that not only did you come to adopt us, to call us your own, but this gave you great pleasure. It gave you great pleasure to think about adopting us. So Father, tonight, we, in the name of Jesus, command this, this curse of slavery, this curse of orphan off of us. We, in the name and authority of the Lord Jesus, we, are, we take authority over our souls and our hearts tonight. And we ask tonight that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, the power of revelation, that you would give us understanding and insight, that you would help us tonight take a big step in our journey toward living out our call as sons and daughters, mothers and fathers. Father, I pray tonight for every person here trying to prove something to someone. Lord, I pray tonight that they would hear these words from you. Well done, my son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen very closely. As you're standing there, just keep your moment, just keep your attitude of worship. I just feel really compelled to say this. When Jesus came to be baptized by John the Baptist, he, he's done nothing. He's not done any miracles. He's not preached any sermons. He hasn't done anything. He's been a son in the house of Joseph and Mary, worked in his dad's carpenter shop most likely, but he hasn't really done anything. And he walks up and John the Baptist says, there, there he is. I, this is the man who is, I'm not even worthy. He says all those things, and John the Baptist baptizes him. And as, John, and as Jesus is coming up out of the water, it says that the Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon him, and a voice from heaven says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus didn't have any resume. He didn't have any, he didn't have any wins. Before he ever started his ministry, God wanted to settle something to the crowd there and to the people and to us. You are son. You are daughter. Now you get to go do something. You don't have to go do something to be son and daughter. You are son. You are daughter. Now you get to go do something. So, Father, we just received that tonight. Thank you for calling us son. Thank you for calling us daughter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen? Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. All right, I, um, I, I, I'm so I'm, I'm excited about this because I just wrote this. This came out today. I just, I just, I just wrote this, and it just came out. It's got the smell of ink on it. Take one home. But I wrote this, but and I, there's like, it's 52 chapters, and there's tons of chapters I wrote just for pastors. I talk about when an orphan becomes a pastor. I talk about the cry of a slave pastor. I, I mean, I just wrote a whole bunch of chapters in here because I, I realize pastors are consumed by this and I was I was hopeful that it would get here and it got here today and you can have it if you I mean, if you want it you can have it I'm selling them for 10 bucks you can have it I, I want everybody to have one I just want you to buy it if you can take it if you want I wrote it for you I wrote it for our church I wrote it for my I wrote it to Abram and Callie and this is my dedication that says to Abram and Callie because this is what we say at our house all the time for Abram and Callie forever and always and, and we say that at our house because I want them to know my love is unconditional and so is God's it's forever and always with God with me I tell Abram and Callie, we've been sentenced to heaven and can't get out of it. It's kind of a good deal. So I want you to have it. 
I'll give this right now to the first LSU fan that comes over. You mean LSU fans? Right there behind you. Nice. All right, Pastor Brad, come on. Thank you, guys. Hey, in the morning is going to be great. Pastor Eugene Peterson tomorrow morning. And then tomorrow night, Pastor Jack Hayford. Listen, that's over 100 years of pastoral experience we're going to glean from tomorrow. Over 100 years of pastoral experience. We're going to hear from Eugene tomorrow via video. Pastor Jack is going to be with us tomorrow night, live and in person. Can't wait. Can't wait to have those conversations. Welcome, Pastor Brad Parsley. Love you guys.